Welcome to the Sisters in Crime Writers Podcast. Everyone has a unique writing journey, so join us for conversations about those journeys from the writers themselves. Julie Henricus, the Executive Director of Sisters in Crime, and I am really thrilled to welcome Harini Nagendra to the podcast today. Harini is a professor of ecology at Azim Premji University, who features in the Stanford University's list of 2% top-cited world scientists. She's written multiple award-winning nonfiction books on ecology, but mystery is closest to her heart. She also writes the Bangalore Detectives Club series, historical crime books set in the 1920s colonial India featuring young feminist detective Kaviri Murti. Harini, welcome to the podcast. Julie, it's such an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, I'm, I, I love that I'm talking to a renowned scientist about writing mysteries, and we're going to talk about that. But let's start where I always start on this podcast. When did you say to yourself, I want to write a, a fiction book? I mean, obviously, part of your life has been writing nonfiction, but when did you say to yourself, I want to write fiction? The 2007, I was, in, and it's very strange because Kaveri, my main character, she was then called Bhagirati. I don't know how her name changed, <laughs> uh, but she, I, as one of my readers recently told me, it, the way I describe it is almost like I had a visitation. So I would say I had a visitation from her. I was in my mom's house. I was pregnant then with my daughter, who's now 16. And uh, I was looking through a lot of a lot of my work. My academic research is on old Bangalore, so I was surrounded by maps, old documents, and there was a lot of fascinating stuff that I couldn't put in. And a lot of my conversations with my mother are about women in the times of the 1930s, the 20s, who wanted to do things mm-hmm. and couldn't you know, study, work, a lot of other things that they wanted to do and never had the opportunity. I'm assuming some of that came together in my mind, but all I know is Kaveri dropped into my head and said, write about me. And I read fantasy and mystery. Those are my two big genres. So since I was writing about Bangalore and a real, you know, real world uh, setting, it was obviously going to be mystery, not fantasy. <laughs> but then it took me from 2007 all the way to 2020 to actually write the book and get it published, which, which is a different, you know, I, I had no idea how to write one of those books. So, so talk to me ahead. about learning how to write the book. I mean, and what that took, especially um, as somebody who writes nonfiction and scientific um work you have to untrain yourself on some things i would imagine so tell me about that journey for um learn, writing fiction learning how to write fiction for me it was very interesting because at first time when i was young I was writing fiction and so i used to write little stories little books my father was my answer he was my poor uh, you know very very cooperative uh, reader so i used to write these little books for him when i was 10 and 11 and uh, he would have to say he liked them i wrote so i wrote a lot of fiction all the way through when i was a postdoctoral uh, researcher at indiana university i took classes in short story writing i wrote a couple of short stories which went into literary magazines so that would be 2001 and 2002 
Mm-hmm. And then I stopped because somewhere along the way, my nonfiction, my academic popular writing took off. So I write newspaper editorials, I write a lot of newspaper articles, scientific papers, and they're always linear, you know, narrative. They have to be to that word count. They have to be very precise. You use very simple language. Uh, you you try. You actually you have to really untrain yourself. So I had two problems when I started to write fiction. The first was the kind of fiction I had written before was very unplotted and I'm not a very good plotter by by instinct. And so I really didn't get to know, get to the end of the story. I would have all these fascinating characters who are doing fascinating things and the murder would come very late because I was very curious how they interacted with each other and new characters would land on the page. So I actually wrote three different endings and I wrote very tight early on. So I would struggle to get beyond 40,000 word story, you know, and you mm-hmm. can't publish a book which is more than 40,000 words. I just didn't know how to fit in other threads and make it longer. And I wrote very simply, which means I foreshadowed the murder and the identity was very obvious very early on. So I had to untrain myself for a lot of things. So uh, the, two things, yeah. One is learning how to write non-linearly and plot. And the second thing was to switch off I mean, I have to see even now when I start my fiction, my nonfiction books, I'm on very sure ground, right, Julie, because it's based on my research mm-hmm. or somebody's research that I'm pulling into the book. So I feel like I really have that firm foundation of facts around which I can weave that story. And here I get this vivid impression that I'm, it, it's it's really very vivid. I feel like I'm constructing a skyscraper out of thread and it's, if I blow on it, it's going to come crashing down. <laughs> and I have to just make myself move that image from my mind and just keep on. At some point, you know, this plot thickens enough because I'm I'm trying to plot, but I'm still not a very good plotter. But at some point it comes together enough that I feel like, okay, this is going somewhere. And then I can breathe and then it's much easier to write. But the first few weeks are still sheer panic. <laughs> I think that's a, uh, that's a common story uh, from a lot of writers is that even if you've written 15 books, you still... <laughs> are convinced this is the book that's going to prove that I it's all I've been lying to people. So how did you build the craft? How did you develop the craft of fiction writing? I listened to a lot of podcasts. So I have to say this is still the time, you know, the, the podcast that you do has been very helpful. I've been listening to a number of other podcasts where they get writers on. And I took some sisters in camp, so I took a couple of courses, but especially the one by Reese Reese Bowen. So that course was excellent. And, you know, when she was talking about her ideas of, she says she knows the beginning and the end and she knows tent poles in the middle. And so she mm-hmm. moves along in that. And uh, just, I think, also Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America and Crime Writers of Color. These are the three memberships I belong to. And when writers discuss their craft, that's been really helpful. Because often writing classes or writing books are not that helpful because they're not specific enough. I find. You know, for instance, I was struggling very early in my first book, uh, The Bangalore Detectives Club. Of course, I love ecology. And so I'm going to have a lot of ecology in there. Yeah. And I love food and there's recipes and there's food. And uh, the editors told me, look, the book is good, but there's a lot of tree love and a little bit too much of food love going on there. So, how, so then I was listening to other writers talking about how they feed in setting information in dribs and drops. So you do, you know, a paragraph here and a paragraph there. Right. Sorry. <coughs> Or if you're writing about a setting, how you can conjure it up with three things, you know, so three things about a person's face or character, three things about a setting that comes in. And I find that rule of three very useful, which I've heard a couple of writers describe. So things like that have been really, very useful to me. 
Or another thing that I found very, very useful was, again, not being the, the, the non-plotter that I am, is to write the story. And for me, it's very easy. I have to figure out who the murderer is. And I, so I write in the most obvious murderer. And then I heard someone on a podcast, and I can't remember who it was, saying that that's the way they write it first. And then they think, who who's the most non-obvious person who, could, who it could be? And then they say, okay, if that surprises me, it's going to surprise the reader. So they go back and change it all the way through so that it turns out to be that person as the murderer. <laughs> and like, so these are things you will never get in a book, right? You get it from a writer who's been doing it with a craft. So I found Sisters in Crime, Mystery Writers of America, Crime Writers of Color, really very useful. So that's where I've been building my craft. And and they also offer, and what I'm hearing you say was has been helpful, is the community aspect. Being able exactly. to talk to other writers and and we discount that early in our careers about how important it is to talk to other people who are doing the same thing um, and not try and go it alone. For me, especially so, because I'm very, you know, the, the, the difference between academia and uh, the crime writing community has been really stuck. Of course, you have some wonderful academics, great friends of mine, and we support each other a lot. But academia, by and large, is not supported. Academia can be pretty cutthroat, right? Yeah. And what you're often doing is, we even now send, after 30 years of doing this, you send uh, your papers out into a journal. It comes back with anonymized review for good reasons. But the anonymized review can be pretty brutal. I've got messages back saying that, Things like uh, this writer is trying to publish a, a paper from data, like squeezing blood from a stone, and these are not these are not unusual comments. You get them, so wow. it gives you a very good. I mean, the good part of it is it gives you very thick skin. I'm not affected by by brutal reader reviews at all, and I learn to take the you know the, the parts that I want, which are useful to me. But having writer community is something I was just not used to. And people are so warm. So, for instance, uh, I was on a Sisters in Crime California uh, podcast, and I was listening into a podcast which Katrina was doing two years ago, Katrina McPherson. And uh, I just happened to comment that that here I'm a, you know, a prospective writer. Then I had still published my book, though I had my contract, and I said I'm here from Bangalore in India. And uh, so they invited me backstage for uh, you know drinks virtual drinks, and I spoke to James Siskin, I spoke to Katrina McPherson, and then Katrina reached out saying, are you thinking of blurbs yet? And I'd be happy to read your book and blurb for you. I didn't know that there was such a thing that you could ask someone for blurbs. It was just so lovely of her to reach out. And then she connected me to several people. I reached out to Reese Bowen because, again, we never taken her course. I didn't expect that she would say yes, but she did. So just the generosity of writers that have reached out, given me suggestions, very early on, so uh, halfway through, so this would be some, I think, 2014 or 2016, there used to be the uh, Pitch Fest. They would do this on Twitter. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so uh, Gigi Pandian was uh, one of the, the mentors uh, there. And I had reached out to her and I got shortlisted by her, but she was very sweet. I wasn't the first person she finally selected, but she gave me very good feedback and she offered to read my pages again. And again, has been very supportive all the way throughout, you know. So just, just the... It, it can be very isolating for me in India because you know you're very far away from where books are getting sold or the conversations are. It's expensive. It's difficult for me to actually make it to, to write a conference. I haven't actually made it to one except for one in Toronto that I was invited to. So it can be very you know, unnerving. You don't know what's, what's going on. Uh, you can't read the, the room in that sense. But having people that you get to know much has been such a preference. 
I also think that the crime writing community in particular is a kind community and supportive community. Um, no, not everyone, but um, but I, I often say it's because we work our issues out on the page. <laughs> so it is, I, I'm not sure all genres are as supportive as the crime writing community, but it is an incredibly supportive community. To my agent, the Clea leads with a lot of horror and science, uh, and then crime fiction, sorry, and she says that the crime fiction and the horror communities are the most supportive, because it probably for this reason, she says horror too, you know, you worked all your issues out, and uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So as you're writing this book, and this character just appears, Hmm. A very in 1920s India. Tell me about that and having because that requires a lot of research. The 20s are really interesting time. There's some wonderful series set in the 1920s in all different parts of the world because uh, you know it's such a time of turmoil and change. Um, but tell me about that and having to to dive into understanding what that world was? But original, see, the original plan was to set Kaveri. She came, so I knew she was a part of one part of the couple and she has a husband, Rama, who's a doctor. So that, that part was very clear in my head. But she was actually, so my original plan was to set this in the 1890s. And that was okay. because one of my, my first plot was about cholera and vaccines. And there was some very cool science, medical science okay. stuff going on there. And Ronald Ross, who was the Nobel Prize winner for his work on malaria, was actually the health officer of Bangalore. And they were working on cholera vaccines. So I had this whole very cool plot going on with people dying of cholera and this one murder. And I got stuck halfway through. And my agent very correctly pointed out that you kind of have a cozy mystery with one third of the city dying, dying of cholera in the background. <laughs> it wasn't working. And, uh, and then she suggested, why don't you move it? Because now you're not bound to the 1890s. If you're not doing Ross and you're not doing cholera. And then we jointly discussed, and I picked the 1920s because it because of all of these reasons. It was the golden age, and there was just so much. It was such an interesting time, post-World War One. And it's I've been fortunate because I had a lot of the research with me, because again of the academic work. It's not easy in India to get archival material. In fact, most of our archival material, and this is part of the colonial issues, you know, a lot of our, our, our archival material is actually sitting in the UK. Or it is in Indian archives, but you have to run through so many hoops to get it that it's, I mean, again, being an academic, having a lot of students who worked in this and have actually gone and picked up the material for me is really very, very helpful. So I have the maps, I have the photographs, I have the gazettes and ledgers and files and a whole bunch of things. And because I've studied these looking for ecology, I've always kept aside interesting snippets of things that weren't ecology. So I've been really fortunate in that sense. What I've not had is the archival um, record is, again, because of the colonial record, Indians are a very oral tradition. So we tend to pass on stories, but we're not very good at writing things down. So you have very little that was written from the Indian point of view, a lot from the yeah. colonial British point of view, right? Or the Indian bureaucrat who was almost British in their thought processes. Mm -hmm. And there I've gone to oral histories. Again, we've done a lot of oral histories of our own with grazers and fishers, and those are the kinds of you know other characters, ordinary characters that I tried to bring in to populate. But for Kaveri herself and the women's world that she inhabits, I've then gone to my mothers and aunts and their stories of grandparents and my own memories of my grandmother. So my grandfather, my father's father was born in 1897. 
And um, so we do go a bit back, you know, in my father's family at least. And my father's mother was born in 1908. And yeah, so I remember the clothes she wore, the way she cooked and the things she did and my mother's stories of her grandmother and her mother. And, and I weave those in. And that's what you can't really get from the archives, I think, that sense of domestic daily life. And I think that that's typical in a lot of parts of the world is that the women's history has been lost because yeah. it wasn't considered important enough to write about <laughs> um, or to, to you know, document. Uh, and and I think that that's part of what some some books like yours do is it helps fill in those gaps or offer insights that we may not have thought about um, because we just, you know, history is written through a specific lens. And as you said, Indian history through a British lens is not Indian history. It's, it's British history. Um, and so, you know, really reconciling that and helping people understand all of that. That's the other thing about that time. It's such an interesting time for India as far as um, the colonial rule and the changes that are happening. And women's issues, you know, I was, de- so the, the women's suffrage movement is going on in India, and that's a big part of the backdrop to what I write. So there's the, the struggle for independence, which is going on in the backdrop, women's struggle to for education, and women's struggle for suffrage. And these are the broad themes. But the women's struggle for suffrage is so fascinating because they are in touch with their compatriots from the UK and from the US and Sri Lanka and all of these discussions are going on, other suffrage sets. Uh, but the, they're very clear that our path is not the path of our sisters in the West. That's what they call them. And they say because they might chain themselves to public places, but our men would never support us that way. So, for instance, when they're fighting for inheritance rights, and women in that mm-hmm. that time in India didn't have inheritance rights, they're very clear that they don't want to ask for all of the inheritance rights. They want to share. So the parents, the brothers, everyone else in the family can have their share. They just want a little bit for the widow of the man. Mm-hmm. And so they also link very closely to, to the men fighting for independence because they say we have to join our voice to that of our brothers and in that get them to understand our position. So it's a very, you know, it's a completely different, it's almost a subversive way of let's say, get, let's get them on our side, let's get them to understand our concerns mm-hmm. and also not threaten them in any way. So it's, yeah. a, it's, you have to be very careful. And I find that difference very fascinating. Very fascinating. A little bit more holistic in some senses, um, but also understanding that this is it. You've got to have intersectionality for all of these different fights, and this is this is how you're going to figure it out. Fascinating time of history. Very yeah. fascinating. So she came to you, and I think characters will do that for folks. Um, and just showed up and said, "You're going to start writing about me. Have fun with yeah. that." Um, and you had a sense that she had a husband who was a doctor and all this. Tell me about the ideas and how how you work on a book. Um, first books tend to be world building and there's a lot going on. But as you're writing a series, you know, and you're approaching a second or a third book, how, do, how does that idea come to you and what do you do with it? You said you're not a plotter. But, you know, do you, is there something that, a theme or an idea that just says, oh, this is, this is what this book is going to be about for you? So I start reading uh, what, 
in newspaper accounts and the gazettes and the proceedings and try and find out what happened in those years and that something has to spark. And now I'm doing a book a year. I just So book three will come out in May and I'm just trying to contact for books four, five, six. I'm writing four right now. So I, I felt more confident having done what it took for me 14 years to write one book, but I now know, I feel like I know my process. Like I said, I mean, I, I, I'm also convinced that I fall flat of my face, but somehow these things work together. <laughs> the, the panic and the confidence. But what I do is, so I find that that's sort of the start point. And the start point for book two was I was thinking about a number of real life incidents, including a former classmate of mine whose mother fell in love with a, a godman, a religious man who, um, yeah, who essentially manipulated her for her money and eventually killed her. It was yeah. a, a horrible case that happened much you know, later and it was in the paper. So I guess that was in the back of my mind when I was thinking about times and things that had happened. But I also looked at events that were going on at that time. And there was a horse dog and pony show and Maharaja was there. And they gave out awards to the ugliest dog. And I thought the ugliest dog was an utterly fa fascinating award to sort of base a book. So I had Kaveri go to the show and there was this ugliest dog award. And somehow the godman who was in the back of my mind wandered in and they met. And so there was something with that mystery. And then there was another woman who came in who turned out to be. So Kaveri in book one had a mother-in-law because you always have to have one. Her husband is very supportive. Kaveri's husband, Ramo, is very supportive. And you have to have one character who's not that supportive, which was the mother-in-law, who did not. Book book. And I had to get her out of the way of book one because she wasn't allowing her to sleep. So I, in a community, she had a sick relative. She disappeared for the after the first uh, three chapters, and then she was gone. But in India, and, and many parts of the world, I guess, if you you, know, you don't just marry the man, right? You marry his family, and you have to figure out how to live with someone in a joint family system. And so Kaveri and her mother had to work out their issues somehow. So I decided that was going to be book two. So I said, okay, what if Kaveri's mother-in-law comes to her? She's disapproving of her sleuthing. Maybe she comes to her asking her to sleuth. And why would she do that? Because there's a relative that she's fond of. So I said, okay, in this horse dog and pony show with the ugliest dog show going on, there's a god man and there's Kaveri's mother-in-law coming up with this friend of hers saying solve this problem. And from there, you know, it went into industrialists and worker strikes and all of the other issues that I saw. There were a lot of worker strikes going on in the background. There was a question of fair pay, and uh, there was, you know, did women become industrialists? So there was actually a woman who was a very famous coffee industrialist, who was a young widow whose husband, she was the third wife, the first two wives of her husband died, and she was left with this young son who also then tragically died, but she set up a coffee empire. And so she worked her way into my book. There was a journalist who set up India's first feminist magazine. And while Vogue was discussing clothes, she was discussing issues like the Indian ethics and their approach to feminism or inheritance laws and a bunch of things like that. So all of these became characters that worked their way in. So that was book two. Book three was easier because uh, in looking at the time period six months later, Prince of Wales, the Prince of Wales who later become, became the king who abdicated, right? So it was very interesting. Uh, so yeah, so... Edward came to Bangalore. He came to India actually at the end of uh, 2021 and was uh, wooed and his dad in uh, two three cities in India. But then came to Bangalore to accolades. And because Bangalore had a princely state and the Maharaja was very sympathetic to him. But I said, you know, what if there was not that much sympathy? What if there was a plot that Kaveri actually fought against the prince? So book three delves into that. Right. So it's, it's, I'm looking at the incidents 
And then book four, right now, I, I want to cover to get out of Bangalore because I've done three plots in Bangalore and I thought there should be a change for readers. And as an ecologist, the other issues I've been very fascinated with are plantations and that whole approach to human-nature relationships because the British came and they had this very hunter's approach to nature, right? So the plantations were made much more extractive. <clears throat> we shot a lot of tigers and, uh, you know, that was supposed to be the, the manly British thing to do. And so I wanted to Again, explore those issues. I had so I thought Kaveri getting into plantation. So there's a British owner on one side, the Indian owners on the other side, and uh, some leopard land, leopards and posts moving around in the background. So there's that. So it really depends on what strikes me. And I would imagine, as a scientist, um, also a hundred years later, looking at what that period of time did or or what the effects have been must also give you an insight into um, the history or or to what the repercussions were um, that that add texture to your novels. Absolutely. And yeah, you know, very right. And that's exactly the things that I'm trying to pick up on. So if it's, for instance, the human-animal conflict and the whole plantations and their approach to nature, a lot of that has to do with the way we approach nature and conservation in India today, which is very much still British-focused. It's this attitude that to conserve things, you must throw the local people out, but you can then have these fancy places that are, you know, for, for the elite to come in and have recreation and parties, which is really the British, the way they looked at it, is, which still influences us. So that's what I'm trying to look at in this book. And in the next book, I plan to have Kaveri actually going to college to study science. And I have to fudge the timing a little because in India, that actually, in Bangalore, that happened in the, 19, in the late 1920s. And it's very interesting because the Maharani, the, the queen of Mysore, was very progressive and she was a strong proponent. So she had the Maharani's college and the Maharani school for wow. women to study. And she was willing to fund all of it. And the Maharaja supported her. But their own bureaucracy worked against them and they delayed it for four years. Saying, this building hasn't come up or women can't do science because of this so they can't do it because of that. And so they actually obstructed them for four or five years. And that is very fascinating again. If you think of women's issues with education even today, that, that lingers, you know, that sort of signal that men, powerful men can defeat an entire setup to make sure that women don't get out of the house and study. Right. And and do it from the roots, you know, so that, you know, they can pretend to agree, oh, this is great because, the, you know, she wanted it, but then just, you know, poison the roots so it doesn't take hold. Exactly, yeah, yeah. And so that is something, even all of these, and you're right, it's, it's because I moved to the 20s. So I often tell Priya that I'm so glad that she made me move from the from the 1890s to the 1920s because I would never have been able to study all of these issues. Yeah. And, and again, the insights that we get 100 years later and the lessons that we need to relearn from 100 years ago now um, are fascinating. I, mean, I think that's one of the wonderful things about historical fiction is it can give you um, insight and a sense and help you learn lessons that we need for now. Absolutely, yes. I, I mean, that's why I love reading historical fiction too, because I get to learn about time periods and think of issues that I would never have learned about, you know, from just from history books. Um, and so you get through book six, uh, contracts. I, I, I'm also 
I always find it fascinating. And I think that this is a writer's um, uh, point of view that that I think listeners of this podcast would understand. Sometimes I wish that we could see timelines and when people's contracts are up, because you can see what happens with with series. Because, you know, if you've got three book contract, then you're going to wrap some things up and hope that there's a fourth, but just in case. And then you're going to start another, you know, potential three book arc in the next books. Um, and then, you know, hope for books seven, eight, and nine. Do you, do you find now that you've got these next three books, um, the possibilities of change or of, of different, um, adventures for her have grown? Um, because you do have the freedom to write these three books. They have, absolutely. So I was very, very happy to get the first three book contract to begin with. And that's something I really wanted. As someone who would believe in the books as much as and uh, to take three books in a row. And what I what I thought was the first three books was Kaveri's A New Bride coming into Bangalore. So I wanted her to solidify her place in the family and in Bangalore and make a name for herself as a detective. And I wanted certain personal events in her life to get done. So without giving away spoilers, this, there's one arc that completes between books one and three, when she's come in and is you pride, and then she sort of solidifies in, into her place in Bangalore at the, at the end of book three. And then in four, five, and six, I wanted to complete the education arc because she's she loves mathematics. She really wants to study. And that's something that sort of obstacles come in her way. So I wanted to make sure that she, so that's why at the end of book three, I, uh, book six, I want to have that arc. So she's actually studying and then she can go on and teach or do whatever else she wants to, but she's finished the studies that she wants to get. And then, yeah, seven, eight, nine, I have uh, other plans for her, but uh, I'm hoping that readers will still keep reading. And book time is interesting because uh, you're writing a book a year, mm. but in book time, it's been... You know, the first three books were within a year that they all happened. Within a year. Six, nine months. Yes. Yeah. So you need to keep track of that. And for long running series, again, this is something that's interesting as a writer to go back and read long running series you love to see what they do with book time, because mm -hmm. sometimes it could be frustrating that things don't move faster. But then you realize in book time, it's it may be 20 books, but it's only been three years. So no, slow your roll. It's okay. <laughs> Stuff hasn't happened. Um, gee, and the twenties were such a time of, of, um, of change throughout the world, uh, but in India as well. Do you also, are there, there are things that happened there, um, that you're also, studying or researching or thinking about that you want to add some perspective to um in your book around the world from around yeah. the world yes there are and actually so on the side because i've been thinking of what are the events of so, so, so fighting for suffrage is clearly something where letters are being exchanged but there are other things for instance on science that Kaveri keeps picking up you know the latest magazines i went into a rabbit hole recently because there was a lovely magazine uh, this lovely set of instruments that people developed for women to check their blood pressure and changing in, in volume of the skin. It was a precursor to the lie detector, but it was actually machines that were supposed to measure your arousal and how much in love that you were with your boyfriend. So you kiss your boyfriend and they would put all this electric machinery gadgets on you and measure if your skin dilated and they would tell you, yes, you're in love. Right? Oh. <laughs> and so I wanted her to be one of these machines. In, the, in one of the previous books, she's in the library and they have a vacuum duster, which is the British Library they have. So I'm 
Because I'm trying to get some of these flavors and the science that comes in and the women's issues that come in. But what happened is on the side, I've been reading this and I've gotten fascinated now and I have a plan for a second series at some point whenever I have the mythical free time that I don't have. But to set up something with women characters that actually move around between the UK, the US and India and have this interchange going on. So maybe there are characters that move from India to the US or the UK to the US and they meet or something like that. And then can actually explore this interchange you know, in, in, and this interplay in, in a much better way. And is the second series also set at the same time or is it a different time? No, it would be at the same time, maybe the 1930s rather than the 20s. So there's a little bit more of an opportunity for women to actually do science mm-hmm. or maybe even in the World War time with cryptography. So either the 30s or the 40s, but uh, it's 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 early days. I'm sort of dabbling with the ideas, but I'm doing the research. So I don't, I mean, anyway, I'm familiar with the 20s. So I don't want to go too far away from the 20s. Right. right. So, but just, again, that the decade, such a difference. I mean, <laughs> you know. yes. Yeah. Um, I I love that you are also giving us insights into her world and her um, journey as a as a young bride and as a woman. Tell me about the world building. You, you used an analogy earlier about a building made of thread. So obviously, three books in, four books in, the building is stronger <laughs> because it's been standing. But tell me about the world building that you're doing um, to let readers understand and become immersed, but not do the data dumping, which is what, you know, info dumping that your your first editors were, were saying, you know, interdisperse it, don't give it all at, at the same time. But at the same time, you need to help readers set expectations and understand stakes and what was going on. Tell me about that world building that you've been doing. The, the challenge for me has been the readership being so diverse. Some of my readers are based in the UK. Some, a large chunk come from India and the US and Canada. Those are my three, three big places. And they, the Canadian readership is very largely Indian diaspora. The US readership is not Indian diaspora at all. Many of them are just reading about India, maybe even for the first time. And then the Indian readership, of course, knows it all. So I, I can't over-explain and I can't under-explain. And that's been a balance, really, to, to sort of figure out. Where, so it's where, my books, if I look back and see, I, I would characterize them as very character-driven. Uh, so I have Uma Aunty, who's the, the, the what I call the backhouse neighbor. She lives behind Kaveri, and she's this kind of elderly lady who helps her out of sleuthing and is very gossipy and therefore knows everyone and knows everything. And Uma Aunty landed up on the page. She was not a character. So I started writing about Kaveri. Her husband, Rango, went off to the office and she needed someone who would take, take her into this world. It was not going to be her mother-in-law, clearly. So she just landed up on the page and took over. And then another friend of Kaveri's is Inspector Ismail, who really likes Kaveri because he has this funky daughter who reminds and Kaveri reminds him of his daughter. And he again walked into the page and took over. So these characters have strongly, you're right, they have solidified now. Anandi was a young abused uh, woman who has now become a spunky rescuee who is now fishing back and become a close member of Kaveri's group, the Banjo Detectives Club. And so I was, this is where my academic and non-academic interests uh, converge. Um, I, so a lot of my work was um, with Eleanor Ostrup, who got the Nobel Prize. She was the first woman economist to get the Nobel Prize. I saw work on commons and communities. 
And I'm very much normatively of her idea that the best things in life have been done when communities or groups get together, not when individuals, you know, something. So it's very mm-hmm. much a heroine story as opposed to a hero story. And that was why it's the Bangladesh Club for me, because I want to show that a club comes together, a group comes together and solves things. It's not a very other world is a persecuting thing, right? But in that context, I had to explain many things. So often uh, people assume that because you have arranged marriages in very large parts of India, they are often going to be abusive and forced and coerced. And some are, but many are not. My parents had an arranged marriage, my sister had an arranged marriage, so many people that I didn't. Uh, my husband and I had met and fell in love. But so many people around us have had marriages, and you know, you can have both kinds that are all kinds. And I remember I had a a reader from the U.S. who had originally come from Africa, and she's a psychiatrist, and she wrote to me saying she likes my books because, I'm quoting her, she says, I don't pathologize Indian suffering, Indian women's suffering. She says, I understand that there are abusive marriages, but otherwise a lot of South Asian writing that I see in African writing too tends to be all about the abused woman, and I like the fact that you have a woman with a supportive husband. And uh, so that, that's really also what I'm trying to show, the reality of Indian life as seen through Indian eyes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Someone's based in India and this is how life is. But I do have to translate at times. And words begin, so I have a glossary and I have recipes, but what I had to choose is figure out how to translate the names. You know, so for instance, would Kaveri call her mother-in-law Atil, which is what you would call your mother-in-law, would you say mother in English? And to write mother sounds very artificial, but to write Atta, nobody will know what that means. And then I drew inspiration from Latin American writers because they use Latin American, they use Spanish terms all the time and people accept them. So right. I would say Atta, find out a way. It took me a while, but within the next sentence or that sentence, I would figure out a way for people to know that it was mother in law. And yeah. so it becomes obvious to the reader, right? Or you use a certain word for rights, which would be Anna. And so you'd use the word and slip it in and say that she would then point it to the plate of rice. And there was something like that. So little tricks like that that I really figured out along the way. I still have Indian readers who say, why do you explain so much? And I still have my editors from the UK saying, I don't understand what you mean by this. <laughs> well, you could sounds like you could have two different versions of the same book. It's like, all right, but that does that's how publishing works. I love what you're talking about as far as um, giving an authentic viewpoint where you're not, uh, you know, many books are written from a white person's viewpoint Mm -hmm. or, you know, UK or US or whatever, so that it's not going to give all the truths because you don't understand it. I mean, you could do your best and we all do our best, but to really give people a sense of this is the world through this lens is such a gift to readers, you know? I've had to say I've enjoyed the way in which people received it because I was curious to find out, would this be of interest to people? And would they want to read about 1920s? I mean, Bangalore is not a big city in the way Calcutta was or Bombay was or many of the other Indian books are set of those times. You know, there are wonderful books like... Sujata Massey's books. Yeah. But uh, there's been a set set in Bombay. Why would anyone want to read about Bangalore? But I've been very grateful that people have wanted to read about Bangalore from this perspective. Yeah. And and to uh, also to learn parts of history to to reconsider our own history, you know, to mm-hmm. understand that there's 
things going on in the entire world, <laughs> you know, wasn't just in one place that suffered, uh, suffrage was being discussed. It was worldwide for whatever reasons. And that, that's actually something I've been thinking about is what, what was the net, how did this all happen, you know, at the same time that, that suffrage started to, mm-hmm. to occur or to be right. part of conversations or to move forward. Um, and you know, we, that's a, that's a different conversation, but an interesting one. Um, so do you, that you, this is, you consider this a cozy series? Yes, very much so. And, and why, why did you decide to write in that genre? I read cozies and I'm not, uh, so the, the, the part I personally find very hard to, about writing these mysteries is to put myself in the shoes of the killer. Yeah. And that's also why I sort of, I, I, part of the reason I don't plot, because to plot, you must understand the killer's motivation that I find myself very reluctant to go back. It's just not something I'm, I'm keen on doing. And uh, so, you know, I don't read real crime, nothing to do. I mean, I, I think those books are very important and need to be written, but that's not what my preference is. So I was definitely going to go a MOOC, Agatha Christie-esque tone. But I do want to, I to talk about malnutrition and hunger and women suffering and abuse and all of the other things that are going on, but very, very light touch. So that's just, that's my comfort level. <laughs> I, I can't imagine myself doing anything else. So we're not going to get a psychological thriller by her on. No, you're not. <laughs> <laughs> um, and did you, you know, within cozies, I can also understand an agent or, uh, saying to you the cholera conversation, especially during a worldwide pandemic with COVID, <laughs> yeah. may be a m- bit much. Like that's like, you can't cozy that up too easily. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it was interesting. We had that conversation in 2019. It was just a few months before pandemic. It was really pretty enough for her to suggest not to go there. Um, but you you are immersing yourself in this world and thinking about things. Uh, and I love to talk to people who do uh, write historical fiction because people who read historical fiction will read historical mysteries. It it broadens your readership by writing historical, but they tend to be very rabid about Mm -hmm. the facts or, or this or that. So for you, you know, even as you're looking at the education conversation, fudging those dates, I mean, you're going to have to write a forward and probably blog posts and everything else to say, I know, it's not exactly right, but I needed yeah. it to work in the book. Um, do you get feedback from readers and, and from folks who question or who want you to, and that actually your scientist brain must help you with that because you have your citations. But is that part of your experience as well? That has been, absolutely. So in the first book I had, I wanted Gandhi to come to Bangalore and because I wanted a character Ismail to make a reference to that. And um, Mahatma Gandhi came, but he came the year before I had him come. So I had him come, you know, a year uh, later in the book. And a reader pointed that out. And I said, yes, I did it deliberately. But what I should have realized I I realized later was to put it in my acknowledgement. So now I have a historical note where I actually write them. But look, this happened. This cafe was real. That photo booth was not real or this incident happened but that incident I happened but it happened two years later and I moved it back yeah and so I make all of this clear in my historical notes yes yeah 
Yeah, because but they, scientific training does help because I I can actually go to sources which I guess would be a little harder, not that people couldn't go, but I go straight into the original archival documents or into academic papers. And so that that helps a lot because I know that, you know, if, if it's in a journal and they publish it with a citation, then I know they've done their work and I just pick up bits and pieces. So that helps. Yeah. Fascinating. Really fascinating. Uh and and hard. I, I can't imagine writing historical, but I'm glad that people like you do. Do you ever think about writing current day? I have so I did a nanogramma in twenty twenty and I have a contemporary one which I need to revise at some point. But uh, again, this is the question. I mean I have the the, the full-time day job. I have my 86-year-old mom who lives with me. I have a 16-year-old daughter and uh, so it's, it's a full day and a full evening at home and then the writing that has to be squeezed. But I would like to make the contemporary book into a series at some point. I, I know where, exactly where to revise the plot. So my agent's seen it. We know what we what I need to be doing with it uh, at some point. And would it be another series or would it be a standalone? I would like it to be another series, but I don't know that I can actually pull off two series at the same time. So which is yeah. at least not till the 16-year-old goes off to college. <laughs> well, and I think that this is an important conversation to have as well. You know, um, you have a full life and, uh, you know, a lot going on and you also write. Tell me about how your writing practice and, and what that looks like for you. Um, because I think sometimes people want it to be perfect. You know, they wait till they're retired or they wait till this or they wait till that. Or And you have this full life and you said, I'm still going to write these books. So, you know, tell me about your writing practice. What I've realized is that I I can't do my academic writing and then move to, non uh, to the fiction writing in the same day because my brain has switched to the academic way of writing, you know, count your words, write linear, all of that stuff. I can do it the other way. So, uh, but I'm also a fast writer. And thanks to the fact that I write so much for my daily job, I see a lot of journalists talking about and lawyers talking about writing. And they seem to be, again, the same kind. You just sit down and you get to it because you're used to writing, right? So um, I'm luckily fast. And so what I try and do is sometime in December, I will plot out to the extent that I can plot uh, you know, the rough sketch of what I want to do and the time period and the setting. And then in January, from January to February, so two months, I try and do 10,000 words a week. And so by the end of February, I have a draft. And then I set it aside for sometime in March. And then the second half of March and April, I will revise it at least a couple of times. So I do one or two more rough revisions. And then it goes to my husband and doctor who really give me inputs on it. And then it goes to my agent and then the editor. So it goes to a few drafts by then. But the two months that are really intense for me are then January and February, when I have to get those 10,000 words in a week. And Saturdays and Sundays are easy because I can do 5,000 words, you know, 2,500, 2,500, and so I get my Saturday and Sunday mornings. But the other, so I then try and do two or three days in that Monday to Friday week, where maybe in the morning, or if I can't get the early morning done that day, then it's going to be late night at 10 or 11 or whatever. And if I can get a couple of hours, then I can. Sock away a couple of thousand words. So that's the real, you know, that's the way I do it. Early mornings or or late evenings. That said, that doesn't always work because my work, I'm, I, I'm requiring what is the dean of research for my university. I set, I founded a climate center. We're staffing it, we're growing it. 
where I'm a climate festival, which every year which we get about 15,000 students. So we're gearing up for that six months of the year. So a lot of stuff. So my work spills over into my evenings and weekends and often my, yeah, my days off. And then it gets really, you know, so my mom comes in to ask me something. My daughter comes in to ask me something. And I pull out of my t 20s suddenly in real life. Or, you know, I get an urgent call from work saying, can you do this approval? And then I'm really, I'm not comfortable <laughs> because I'm snapping at people in the house and I'm very irritable and I have to apologize to them. And say, I just need to finish this book and I just finish it to the end of February. So January and February are hard days. <laughs> well, I love that idea of 10,000 words a week. I mean, that's a lot of words, um, but it also gives you that first draft, rough as it might be or, or whatever. Do you write through or do you stop and research or go back and edit or do you just, you're just writing this, you're just moving forward and you'll fix it later? I write through. And if I have a change, like I know that as I'm writing that this chapter actually needs to be moved to the end, I'll go back and just write in two lines and highlight in yellow or whatever that. I'm very low tech. I write on Word, no Scrivener, nothing else. I just highlight in yellow and I'll make a note to myself to change this for this reason so that I won't forget later. And then researching, I will stop and do. So now I'm trying to figure out you know, I, I'm setting setting it in food and plantations, and I need to know a little bit of inheritance history and food marriage laws and those kinds of things. So I did a bit of research and I plumped in things, and I have papers that I put into a folder and then I make notes for myself. But all that goes into the book, so it's all rough draft. You know, and that's what then I write through. Because if I go back, and I'm still in that mode where I'm hypercritical about my work, so if I go back, I know I'm just going to throw the whole thing into the trash bin and say this is awful, terrible. No one's going to read it. What whatever made you think you could ever write a book? And so I just I just don't look back and just move you just forward. keep writing. Just keep What's writing. your favorite piece of writing advice you've gotten, or and or the worst piece of writing advice you've gotten? Mm -hmm. So the the worst piece of writing advice I would say has been things like writing every day. It just doesn't work. I mean, for some, some of us with the other things going on, it just doesn't work. And so, yeah, right every day. I hear many people saying that to new writers, and I feel like that really sets the bar for, you know, like you say, it makes people feel like you have to retire and get the kids out of the home, and right. you have caregiving duties and all of the other things you're not going to get writing done. And so that, that would be the worst piece of advice. I think the best pieces of advice would not be one, but... It would be pieces of advice that I that I get from podcasts from writers dis discussing how they have faced an actual difficulty in writing. You know, so what do you do when, for instance, if your book is too linear, or you tend to find that you're you, it's you describe the murder too too quickly, and people can, or how do you scatter clues? And it's not not broad advice, but this is how I did it in my book. X or my book Y. And this is what I learned from it. And those have been very, very insightful for me because often you struggle with the same thing there. Yeah, that's wonderful advice. Um, <clears throat> is is asking people directly as well, you know, what what do you do or help? Let me talk this through with you. <laughs> you can, um, you know, you can... Having a friend who you could talk through plot who doesn't try and write your book, but who could say, oh, she should do that or... Or have you thought about this? It can be super helpful. Do you have a writing community of folks near you who you can meet in, per in person uh, to talk to about this? 
Unfortunately, not. I was just thinking when you said that, that it would have been so nice to do that. And this is why I would love, absolutely love to come to a writer's conference in the US. And I hope they can do that this, this year sometime. Because some of these things you just need to do face to face. I think you you need to meet people and talk to them about things and then sit in those conversations and, and have those meetings. And that is something I really miss being, being far away in India. I mean, the writing community has been very supportive, but I think that face-to-face interaction is something that, that is very hard to replace. Well, are there a lot of mystery writers in India who are close by or or what's, you know, it's a big country, no, so it's yeah. It's pretty scattered. There's some in Mumbai that I know well, but some in Delhi and you might meet them occasionally at Litfest, but no, not, not that many. Not really that many, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah, meeting people in person is helpful because then you can also meet in Zoom and, uh, you know, and, and continue the conversations. But yeah, I hope you can come to a writer's conference. Um, at I'm some hoping this to year. be about this year, fingers crossed. I mean, again, my mom's health is, is usually the, the, the reason that, that sometimes I can go. I need to count my conferences very carefully. But this year, I'm trying to do only one academic conference. So I keep my other time for actually coming to Bacha So I'm hoping <laughs> That would be lovely. I also uh, I appreciate your your talking about that of, of caring for aging parents or or you know people who are teenagers who are you know going off into the world but not quite yet. They those are also time consuming and life life events that you can't rush. You can't <laughs> you can't no. ignore. I mean, this is this is part of life. Yeah. What's been lovely for me is that when I started writing the book, my, I was pregnant with my daughter, but now that she, she reads it, my husband read it and give me, or, or you know, we discuss plot points and they give me inputs and help me brainstorm and talk it through. So in some sense, I'm trying to, you know, weave our time in with time on the book. And that's been really, really helpful because. Yeah. They must be so thrilled for you that you've got this success too. Yeah, my daughter loves it because she loves reading. My husband is not a fiction reader. He's just very sweet and he will read that for me and give me input because it's me. But he's not a fiction reader by heart. But she's now off reading her own mystery books and she's also a big cozy mystery reader and a fantasy book reader. So she's off reading her own things. It's a, it's, and you said earlier that you also, uh, you read fantasy. Do you ever think about their couple of Rachel House of Halls about to launch a fantasy yeah. series. I mean, do you ever think about writing in another genre? I do, and I have, uh, you know, seeds of a fantasy book, something I started writing for my daughter. I never finished it. She keeps pointing out to me. Uh, <laughs> so I would love to convert that into a book at some point. I mean, so many books, never enough time. I know. And, yeah. But I, I really would love to. And I would love to write eco-fiction also. Because again, just ecological interest in the climate crisis. And I think there would be some wonderful things to pull in there. So maybe all of that together. Maybe a fantasy book with a mystery going on, which also tackles ecological issues. Well, you would be so well suited to writing uh, eco-fiction. I mean, it would. I, I can't even... <laughs> You know, I can already see the book tour. <laughs> it's like, hey, this may sound, you know, huge and like it could never happen. But let me give you, let me explain what's going on. <laughs> and that may be get a, a way to get people to understand, too. I mean, to really appreciate what's going on is to tell them a story and then give them the facts. 
it's been interesting writing fiction and non-fiction. So this year I had a non-fiction book, which is a popular book, and it might it reaches wide audiences, but my fiction reaches so many more people. And they will think about issues so much more if you approach, if you personalize them through fiction than if you depersonalize them and approach them more more scientifically. And then that's been a huge learning for me as a writer, frankly. Well, I find my own reading. I will. I've, I've been reading books set in the twenties for whatever reason. Um, a lot of them recently, and uh, so now I'm reading nonfiction <laughs> to help uh-huh. me understand even more about this period of time. Because also, you just need to understand and the different perspectives. As you, as we've talked about a couple of times, is so helpful to sort of understand. This is coming from this perspective. This is coming from this perspective. Here's another perspective. And and from this, facts are there, but the truth is what is the perspective. Like, there is no such thing as truth. It's somebody's <laughs> interpretation of facts, <laughs> right? That's so really interesting. True. So interesting. I love that when you're talking about your writing, you've got a million ideas. I had a, I did an interview uh, with another writer, um, Alan Orloff, who said, I understand, I know I'm talking to a writer when they've got a million ideas and they just don't have the time <laughs> or the bandwidth to deal with them. And, you know, somebody early on or somebody who's not, not committed to the writing process has trouble coming up with ideas, you know, and writers frequently, it's like, my, my idea folder is full. (laughs) (laughs) It's time. That's the issue. Right. Exactly. Well, we're grateful that you've made time to write this series and that you made time to have this fascinating conversation. Um, and I hope that we do all get to meet you in 3D in uh, at Bouchercon. That would be wonderful. But um, Harini, thank you so much for the time and for the great conversation. Thank you, Julie. It's been such fun. And now I have to have, have much more to think about, about many of my ideas now. So this has been great. <laughs> and like I told you, I'm such a fan of this particular podcast. And I've learned so much from it. So it's a real delight to be here. Oh, it's our, it's our pleasure. This has been wonderful. Thanks so much. Thank you for being with us today. Sisters in Crime is about community. We were founded to advocate for women crime writers, and we continue that mission by fighting for equity in the crime writing community. Sisters in Crime is an international, inclusive organization for all who write and love crime fiction, mystery, thrillers, and suspense. Join us at sistersincrime.org and make sure you subscribe to this podcast.